want to, uh, uh, first time I've done this in a while. So bear with me if I'm a little rusty, if it takes me a while to prime the pump or whatever. Uh, But I just just want to share with you today from my heart, really. Um, And I want to talk to you. I'm going to to start using terms that could potentially be triggers for you, depending on uh, how you think. Here's what I mean by that. Um, We all language is a means of communication, right? It's a means of transmitting an idea from one person to another. Uh, the reason that becomes a challenge for us is because we all have a different set of experiences, every single one of us. There's none of us that attribute the same meanings to every word that we use. Now, that can be true of something as simple as a car. If I were to say to you, think about a car. Uh, if we broke it down and had each one of you describe the kind of car that you were thinking about, we would get a various array of makes and models and colors and etc. right? Because you're coming from your personal experiences. And a car is very concrete. I can show you a picture of a car. You can ride in a car, drive a car, the whole thing. When we start talking about more abstract ideas, it becomes more difficult to communicate. <clears throat> So, for example, if I were to say to you that a few months back I was very depressed. Uh, Depression is not like a car. I can't bring depression up to the front and have you feel it and touch it and look at it and draw a sketch of it. Because it's not a concrete idea. It's an abstract idea. And depending on how you do depression will depend on how you think I do depression. Maybe when you do depression, if you ever get depressed, if you don't, good for you. But maybe when you do sadness or grief or whatever, maybe for you it's uh, staying in bed uh, till, and, and just sleeping your life away as a, maybe a means of escape or whatever. You just don't want to get out of bed. You're constantly tired, etc. and so on. There are other people that can experience depression as racing thoughts, their negative thoughts, their unhappy thoughts. But when they try to go to sleep, they can't shut their mind down. And so for them, they don't sleep and they try to do things. Uh, for some people, depression looks like I've got to get something to pick me up and get me going. For other people, depression looks like if I could just get something to make my mind stop and make the pain inside quit, I'd be okay. And so maybe that person does depression by constantly being active constantly keeping the mind full of something so you don't have to think about your own issues. Am I making sense to you? So the higher you go up in abstraction, the more difficult it is to communicate concepts. So when we talk about things of the spirit, it's even more so that way. When I use the term God, let's just figure some of the ones that we use. God, glory, how about that one? I could say, wow, the glory of God was really, we were in the realm of the glory. We sang about it today, right? And the glory of God was really in the meaning. Well, what do you mean by that? Because we all have a different set of experiences and a different set of references that is all encompassed in that one word, glory. So again, let's come back to the term God. When you talk about God, we all have a different set of experiences. 
Now, words can become triggers when we have a judgment on the word. So if that's you this morning, it's an invitation for you to transcend yourself. <laughs> because here's what happens. When, when we use terms that maybe we have associated with groups who, are, who don't believe about God and about Christ the way that we do, we put a judgment on that, so that limits our ability to talk about spiritual things. Because you have a trigger on it. Does that make sense? So if I talk about energy, if I talk about consciousness, how about this one? Evolution. How many of you, if you're a good Bible-believing Christian, you have a trigger on just the term evolution? And yet it's true. I'm not speaking about creation right now, so don't get triggered. But it's true that things do evolve. Technology has evolved, has it not? Your cell phone has evolved, has it not? So if I were, and, and consciousness is just a term for awareness. It's different than mind, because if I, if I talk about mind, you're going to think about thinking. If I talk about feelings, you're going to think about emotion. But consciousness encompasses it all. Right? So I said all this, I, it's, it's, I said all this to preface the title that I'm going to give this morning is the evolution, the evolution of spiritual consciousness. Can I use that in a Christian context without you getting triggered and turning me off? Let me see your hands if I can do that, if I have permission to do that. Awesome. All right. Praise the Lord. So I want to I, I, I share out of my own life and out of my own heart because, again, going back to the idea of God, we all have a different set of experiences that we've had with God, and we've all been exposed to different information from the time we were little. So my mom took me to church uh, really, really little. And one of the first things I learned was, you know, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so, right? So that's part of my experience that becomes attached to the meaning that I give to what it means to follow Jesus, that he loves me, right? Uh, unfortunately, in the same church, we, we had a very uh, uh, Wesleyan Methodist uh, pastor when I was very young, who was all hellfire and brimstone. And I still remember some of the children's stories that he told that were probably needed to be at least PG-13 because they were terrifying. I'll give you an example. Uh, our children go to the Christian school out here, and, uh, and they teach them the Bible stories at the Christian school. It's part of the reason we have them in the Christian school. And one particular day, Josiah comes home, and he is beside himself with fear, distraught. And he's talking to his mom, and his mom's trying to talk to him about what he's so upset about. I mean, he's almost, he, really, he's inconsolably upset. And he's four, he's four years old at the time. So almost a couple of years ago. And finally she says, well, just go talk to your dad. So <laughs> we... We go into the bedroom, and I begin to have a theological discussion with my four-year-old. And he begins to tell me, he says, Daddy, today we learned the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. And we learned that the devil deceived Adam, lied to him, and deceived him. And God killed Adam because of it. And he's just, I wish I could communicate to you how distraught it was. He was in a panic. He said, Dad... 
If the devil can deceive Adam and get God to kill him, then I know the devil can deceive me and God's going to kill me. Now, how do you work that out with a four-year-old who's traumatized? Well, son, (laughs) I mean, what do you say? You don't need to worry about that? It's all going to be okay? I'm wrestling with how how do I help him with this story so that he can not be traumatized about who God is, because actually it does make sense. If God could deceive Adam and get, I mean, if if Satan could deceive Adam and get God to kill him, then Satan can deceive us and get God to kill us. And so I'm working this through the best way I can. And one of the things my son started at a very, very young age was seeing Jesus physically manifested. First time it ever happened, he was, he was again a little distraught. He says, Daddy, he kept telling me, Daddy, we have to help the injured man in, in the basement. And I'm like, and he's a kid, he's, he's a storyteller, you know, and so I'm not really paying attention to him, but he keeps talking about the injured man. Then he starts describing, he says, Daddy, he's bleeding out of his, out of his palms. And I'm like, what? <laughs> now, we'd never talked to him about the crucifixion or anything like that. So I start talking to him and I start Googling pictures like this of, of Jesus, you know, like cartoon characters. And I start showing him these cartoon characters. He says, no, 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 Dad, it's not like that. It's different. So I remembered that in the Roman Catholic tradition, uh, not, not just Roman, but in the Catholic mystical tradition, so that that's all encompassing, uh, there were people who could manifest what's called the stigmata or the marks of Christ in their hands. And so I looked up stigmata. On the internet, and I found pictures of people who, now regardless of what you think about that, whether you think it's real or phony or whatever, it looks real in the picture. And so I show him these pictures of people who are manifesting the stigmata, and he says, yeah, it's exactly like that. Come on, we've got to go help him. And he starts describing how he's bleeding out of his head, his back, his feet, everything. And he's dragging me downstairs, and he takes me downstairs into the room where I pray. And he says, Daddy, he lives down here. We've got to help him. And so that's how he got introduced to Jesus. And so I'm having this conversation with him about how the devil deceived Adam and got God to kill him. And he, he, he stops and he points in the room and he, he says, Daddy, there's Jesus standing right there. I'm like, oh, thank God. You showed up at a good time. So I said, why don't you ask Jesus about your problem? And I wish I, wish I would have had the presence of mind to record it on my phone. Because I don't remember how the Lord resolved that issue for him. All I remember was he's having this conversation with the Lord. Of course, I can't hear it. And he just starts laughing. And I remember asking him, well, what did he tell you? And I think he said something like, Jesus told me I could just kick the devil in the teeth or something like that. Something, you know, that a child would understand. And within just a couple of minutes, he was completely set free from all of that terror. Now, the cool thing about that was that God showed up and rooted out that seed belief that could have gotten stuck in my child's consciousness, consciousness, right? But it also helped me to realize if that had not happened, he would have been traumatized. Now, how many of you have heard of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder? We all know what that is, right? And typically, although not always, but typically we associate post-traumatic stress disorder with people who have been on the battlefield. 
And they used to call it shell shock. And so uh, what, what causes post-traumatic stress disorder is typically a situation, whether real or perceived, that is a life and death situation. And the body goes into this overload of fear. And then the experience gets literally uh, imprinted into the brain at such a depth that there are times that people cannot tell the difference between their what's real and what's a memory. I'll give you an example. I worked with a gentleman who had post-traumatic, very, very bad post-traumatic stress disorder, not from war, but from childhood abuse, childhood sexual abuse. And someone had referred uh, him to me, and so he comes into my office and he says, before we do anything, he starts telling me his issue, he says, before we do anything, I need to let you know I've worked with two other therapists in the past. The first therapist that I worked with was a woman, and she began to talk to me about, I began to talk about the situation, and I blacked out. He said, I blacked out, and when I came to, I had destroyed her entire office. I, and he's a big guy. I had thrown the desk around, I'd, I'd thrown all this stuff, and she's off in the corner, just, she's now has PTSD, because she's this great big man, you know, and she's off in the corner crying and whatever. And he said, the second time I did it, it was a man, and he said, same thing happened, I blacked out, and when I came, to, I can't remember what happened when he came to, what, what he had done, but what he had done was traumatizing enough to the male therapist that he was on his phone to the police department. And he says, those are the only two times I've gone there. Are you sure you want to work with me? And I looked at him very confidently and I said, yeah, no problem. And I'm thinking, man, I hope my angels aren't on assignment someplace else right now because it would really be good to know that they're here. But by faith, it's, it's all okay. But it's funny how guys are, you know, because I, I, I said no problem confidently and he kind of looked at me like, what, you think you could take me or something? You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's just, it's just kind of funny. But uh, anyway, he ended up getting set free. A couple of sessions, he, he, got, he got totally, Jesus just totally set him free and delivered him. And I know he's amazed when he tried to go back, he couldn't even recreate the trauma. Uh, so there's varying degrees. That's a very, very extreme example of post-traumatic stress disorder. But basically, any kind of stress that threatens your survival can cause post-traumatic stress disorder. My son, had Jesus not intervened from a very well-intentioned story, it's not like they were teaching him, oh, God's going to kill you. They just told the story, and for some reason, at four years old, he was able to make that connection on his own. But had Jesus not intervened, I'm totally convinced that my son would have had a form of spiritual PTSD. Now, here's the problem. The other thing about PTSD is anything can trigger it. So the classic thing is the guy on the battlefield uh, is used to gunshots and that kind of thing. All of a sudden, here's the car backfire. Right. So now he thinks he's back on the battlefield. What happens when your PTSD is associated with words like God and Jesus? Because there's nothing more terrifying or more threatening to your survival than the thought of eternal conscious torment if you're not good enough. And so there were times in my little Methodist church where there were Bible stories that were told that I didn't even realize but had traumatized me. And I remember getting a Bible. I always kind of had a spiritual inclination, always. 
And I think all children do, but I seem to be more so that way, probably because of the calling that was on my life. And I remember getting, you know, um, my first Bible and wanting to read the Bible. And I would read Genesis and I'd do okay till about chapter six when they start going through all the begat, 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 begat. And I would get lost in the begats. How many ever tried to read through the Bible and you get lost in the begats? And so I went to my mom. My mom, very wisely, she said, well, read the New Testament. So I go, okay, okay, I'll read the New Testament. So I open up to the New Testament. Now, the problem for me as a young person, you know, uh, 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 how do I say this? <laughs> okay, 11, 12 years old, uh, 10, 9, 10, however old I was, is you're reading the New Testament, and, and actually the Sermon on the Mount, like, we make it sound like it's this wonderful thing, but it can be traumatizing. Um, you know, uh, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, if you call your brother a fool, you're in danger of hellfire. Uh, this is a tough one for a, a budding uh, male teenager. Um, you know, uh, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look at a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And then Jesus says, you know, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, see, I'm getting associated back into my PTSD. Uh, I can see myself as a young person, you know, hearing these things in my head. Unless your righteousness exceeds that, then you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And then finally, not all that call me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who do what I said. And I realized I call my sisters fools every day <laughs> of <laughs> the week. And for some reason, I have this, seem to have this... N- Sex drive as a male that's causing me problems. And, and so by the time I got to chapter 7, I never got any further in the New Testament because I concluded, well, I guess I'm going to hell and I'll close it up and put the book away because Jesus forgot to tell me the sinner's prayer at the end of this, the Sermon on the Mount. I even had theologians, grace theologians that say, well, he's just, he's just talking about the law and he's trying to show you that you're not good enough and trying to show you that you need a savior. Well, that's great, but he forgot about the saving part. Because what you said about asking Jesus into my heart and being forgiven for my sins and all that stuff, I don't see that. So I really developed a spiritual PTSD. Post-traumatic stress disorder. Because wondering, am I right with God? Am I right with God? I remember even in, in my adult life, I had this dream. Uh, horrifying dream. <laughs> it's really horrible. Um, Really crazy. Why would I dream this? Um, this is many, many years ago, over a decade ago, but it, it impacted me. It imprinted me. Uh, in this dream, oh, I don't even want to tell it because I'll traumatize you. I'm, anyway, it was very traumatic uh, about eternal conscious torment. And so that stuff gets in us. And so at an unconscious level, when we talk about God, when we talk about the Bible, when we talk about Jesus, what can happen to us is it begins to trigger those anxieties. It begins to trigger those fears. And we begin to wonder, am I really okay? Is God really good? Does God really love me? And when you think it's based on your performance, then you start hiding from yourself. Literally, it's, 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 a, it's a psychological mechanism where you hide from yourself. You hide from those parts of you that God put in you, because God did put them in you, but they still don't seem to be congruent with what God says the will of His will is for your life. And so you're wrestling with those things, you're struggling with those things, and I'm just going to tell you right now that we have sucked 
at providing pathways for people to work out issues that we try to hide in the dark. We don't have, a, we don't have pathways for it. Read your Bible, pray, pray in tongues, fast, engage heaven, everything will be all right. Well, it didn't work that way for me. And so I had this growing frustration, like, where is the solutions and the answers for the deeper issues that are inside my heart and life? And then start working with people and think, where are the answers for people that have these deeper issues? And so 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, it says, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into the same image from glory to glory. So here's the point. You become like the God that you behold. And in the Western world, Western theology, we are primarily beholden to a God whose primary function in the universe is judge. We're beholden to that image. And, and you know, the Bible is not helpful in these situations. Because uh, God looks kind of temperamental and cranky some places in the Bible. Like, it just, it bothers me to this day, and again, I can only share my experience and my knowledge, so I'm not saying this is right. I'm not even saying this is authoritative. I'm simply sharing my thoughts on it, and you have the opportunity to see what you think about it. But I have a problem with a God who orders the absolute extermination of a culture and a people. Even a sentient group. Because there's some people who say, well, all the Canaanites were Nephilim seed. I don't know about that. That just that doesn't work for me. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. It just doesn't work for me. But let's say it was. Let's say it was the Nephilim were the, the polluted human seed that came from when the sons of God, the angels cohabitated with, the, with women which supposedly were wiped out in the flood. But anyway, we're not going to get into all that. So how they show up as Canaanites later, anyway, doesn't matter. Where was that going? <laughs> yeah, okay, so let's say, let's say that was justified. Let's say they were just this wicked seed and it was justified for God to tell them to go in there and wipe them all out. Well, you know, there's a story in, in, the, in the law where... Moses finds, uh, they, they find someone carrying sticks, picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. And they bring him before Moses and Moses says, you need to kill him. So now you have a God that's, that's so petty and angry that he gets upset because somebody's picking up sticks. Now keep in mind, they had not settled what it meant to keep the Sabbath. They had one commandment, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, a day of rest. Well, what does that mean? You lay in bed all day? That's why they're, they're fussing about it still in the New Testament. Thousands of years later, they're still fussing about what does it mean to keep the Sabbath. So here, the very first Sabbath, this guy picks up sticks and God says, kill him. <laughs> so when you have post-traumatic spiritual PTSD, these kinds of things don't help. <laughs> Are you breathing? Okay, if that's not bad enough for you, then there's a story in the Bible 
uh, in the Old Testament where God uh, tells Moses to wipe out the Amalekites. No, I'm sorry. God didn't tell Moses. Uh, Samuel tells Saul to wipe out the Amalekites. We say, oh, that was that Nephilim seed that they were supposed to get rid of. Really? Because the Bible itself actually gives you the reason God told them to wipe them out and it has nothing to do with their seed. It was because 500 years ago, they had caused the children of Israel problems in the wilderness. So Samuel says, God's holding a 500-year-old grudge. And he wants you to go in, and he wants you to completely exterminate these people. Completely exterminate the animals. From oldest to youngest, wipe them out. And so Saul goes in, and he spares the best. He passed the judgment, he spares the best. And God gets so angry through Samuel, Samuel, that he rips the kingdom from Saul and gives it to David. See, this stuff's in our Bibles. How are you breathing? And so what can happen is, particularly if we think that all Scripture is equal, depending on how you engage the text, depending on your personality, depending on your temperament, you can build an image of a horrible monster God. There's a major leader in the... uh, uh, mystical movement who, who abandoned the faith. One of the reasons I understand for that was because some of these guys like uh, Richard Dawkins and there's some other guys, uh, I grabbed one of the books that had influenced this person just because I was curious. And there was a section about this good and basically the, the concept behind it was God is not good. And it revealed all this stuff in the Old Testament to show that, that God really isn't good based on the Bible. And you know what? I, I, I'm inclined to agree with that. Because I'm not sure, for me, I started wrestling with these things. And how do I come to terms? Because here's my problem. I have experience with God as incredibly, as, as incredibly loving, as incredibly wonderful, as incredibly merciful, as incredibly gracious. I've worked with people that have every kind of malady and evil in their life you can think of in a counseling context. Some of them major leaders and preachers. And yet have seen God be so gracious and tender and kind-hearted in those situations and the way he dealt with them and the way he delivered them and set them free. So how do I, how do I manage all this? What, what do I do with all this stuff? And so I would get, I would ask, you know, contemporaries for answers. Well, God is God, so he just, he's just and you have to trust his judgment. Well, okay. What about the guys who came over, what about the conquistadors who came over from uh, Europe and told the natives, uh, you either serve this foreign god, or we, you can serve this foreign god, and you can live and we'll enslave you and take your gold. Or you cannot serve this foreign god, and we'll kill you and take your gold. So you take your choice in the name of Jesus. Because they are the modern-day Amalekites. They're the modern-day Canaanites. So you can, you, can, you can use Scripture to justify any view of God that you have. The issue is you become like the God that you behold. So when we think it's okay to drop the mother of all bombs as a Christian nation on Monday, Thursday, on our enemies, and most of us just don't even know, we justify it because they're those damn Muslims that are heathens and worshiping Allah. I'm sorry if that offends you, 
But that's the attitude that gets reflected. Are you breathing? And so somehow we have to try to reconcile all this with the gospel. Somehow we have to try to reconcile all this with Jesus. And so here's my, here's the way I've worked it out because I had to get healed of my own spiritual post-traumatic stress disorder. And a lot of my theological wrestling over the last seven years has been my attempt to overcome those things within myself so that I could be free and really know, yeah, God, you're good, you love me, and I can rest peacefully and joyfully and confidently in that. Because, you know, life can mess us up too. What about, what about people that we pray for that were sick and they didn't get healed? What about... Uh, situations that we prayed for and they didn't happen or they didn't occur for us or or all this stuff and all this stuff gets attached to our image of God and we can try and suppress it and we can try to pretend it doesn't exist and we can try to rationalize it and all that stuff but it's staying inside of us so we're wrestling with these things right and part of our problem is we're trying to make sense out of God based on the portrait that has been given to us only from scripture without understanding what scripture is actually doing So here's my attempt to explain it. So in the beginning, you have the first man and the first woman in the story, Adam and Eve. And God tells them, going back to Josiah, if you eat at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to die. He didn't say, I'll kill you. He said, you're going to die. In other words, it's a cause, cause and effect. This will cause this. And so he eats at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everybody say that with me. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. So that's what he's feeding on. What's good, what's evil. Right? So the moment he does that, the man and the woman, they discover that they are naked. They were naked all along. But now a new element is introduced. They're ashamed. See, in the beginning when God created everything, He looked at everything and said it's good. Now when Adam's eyes are opened, he's no longer seeing through the eye of God where everything is good. Now he's seeing through his own eye and he's judging what God has called good. He is judging as evil. And says, I'm naked and I'm ashamed. So he judges himself. Now he has descended into a world of judgment because we live in a world of polarity. Let me, let me help you with this. We live in a world of polarities. You know what polarities are? Hot, cold. Life, death. Light, darkness. Oh, let's stick with that one for a minute. God said, let there be light. And he divided the light from the darkness and he called it good. And it's amazing to me that he put us in a world where there's creation can teach us things. There's an equal amount of darkness, just like there's an equal amount of light. That's why you have a spring equinox, 12 hours of sunlight, 12 hours of dark. Fall equinox, 12 hours of sunlight, 12 hours of dark. Longest day of the year, winter solstice, uh, shortest day of the year. Or I'm sorry, longest day of the year, summer solstice, shortest day of the year, winter solstice. There's an even amount. As long as we're in this world, it's going to be that way. We will never be able in this world to totally eradicate darkness because God doesn't want it that way. Okay, I'm done. 
So we've got to be okay with the shadowy parts of ourselves. And understand there's, there's treasures in darkness that God promises to give us anyway. So here's the problem. Adam's living in a place of judgment and God comes to fellowship with him. And Adam pushes God away. And God says, where are you? What have you done? Who told you you were naked? And he says, the woman you gave to be with me. I heard your voice and I was afraid because I didn't measure up. I was naked. So that what scripture is showing us is the fallen mind of Adam. See, here's the problem. We project an image onto God based on our limited ability and perceptions to know him. And man, when he fell all the way to the bottom, if you, if you can understand that, the, the fall happening in sections. Does that make sense? It didn't happen all at once. From a Jewish perspective, the fall is not Genesis 3. The fall is Genesis 3 through Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel. And then Abraham is where the ascension begins. So in chapter 11, you have the Tower of Babel. Chapter 12, you have Abraham. That's where God begins ascension and restoration. So in other words, let's look at humanity as a project. Humanity is God's project. But humanity has fallen so far from God that they have no ability to comprehend who he is. And the only perception they can cast of God is that he's angry. And that humanity doesn't match up. And God has to somehow penetrate and work with humanity by penetrating that veil and going all the way down so that humanity can ascend in their, really in their consciousness to the level that they were before the fall. And that doesn't happen in one lifetime and it doesn't happen in one generation. So God comes to Israel, but he's clothed in their perceptions and misjudgments of him. So that every God demanded sacrifice to worship in uh, those time periods when when Israel is developing as a nation to worship isn't this. Oh, oh you're wonderful, Jesus. <laughs> it's you take your best animal and kill it. Sometimes you take your kids and you kill it. Actually, worship was sacrificing your firstborn. So when God begins to penetrate the veil of darkness, what does he do? He takes Abraham out of a culture where it was common to sacrifice your firstborn, reveals himself as God. He goes up to sacrifice his firstborn son and God interrupts it and says, no, I'm not like that. But yet our Bibles say God told him to do it. So you have men hearing from God and it being so distorted that it sounds like I want you to kill your son. Then you have them ascending. That's why Abraham had to go on a mountain. Because when he could ascend in consciousness, God says, no, I'm not like that. I will provide the sacrifice. It's the first glimpse of light breaking in to humanity to show us what God's really like. So then you have a culture that's full of tribal deities. And the way your God is proven to be bigger and stronger than the tribe next to you, God, is when you go to war, your God wins. 
Or to worship is to offer animal sacrifices. Get back to that. Offer animal sacrifices. And so God says, when you sacrifice, sacrifice to me. And here's the rules for all the sacrificial stuff. Why? Because if you're going to kill animals, at least as an act of worship, at least let it be towards me and not towards some pagan god. But as humanity's consciousness evolves, you get to the prophets in Hosea and God says, sacrifice and offering I didn't desire. But mercy, I desire mercy instead of sacrifice. And so what's happening? God's saying, I'm not not into killing. (laughs) Because our issue is that we see God as judge. And you become like the God that you behold. So if God's function is judge and he's judging us, Americans, because we're the Christian nation as the good guys. And, you know, the Muslims, let's say they're the bad guys. And we can build all kinds of reasons that they are, but it's still a judgment. And so God's on our side, certainly. And if that's not bad enough, we can break it down. Okay, if that if that if you if you're just like, yeah. All the Muslims are going to hell. Okay, uh, then let's break it down. Some of you think all the Democrats and liberals are going to hell too, but um, depending on how judgmental your God is, but let, let's come back to the Republican National Convention where there are supposed Christians uh, praying on national stages and cursing, asking God to curse, basically, Democrats. In the name of Jesus. How does that work? Because, see, if you're beholding your God as judge, you become judge just like him. And you decide, the Muslims are wrong, I'm right. The liberals are wrong, I'm right. Because, after all, I'm pro-life, and they want to kill babies. But, yeah, I really don't want um, the babies that come into the world that just happen to be born uh, with pre-existing conditions or just happen to be born, um, I don't know, uh, to someone who isn't productive enough to make a living, so I want to make sure that I deny them access to health care. How can you call yourself pro-life? Shame on you. Or I'll support dropping the mother of all bombs on our enemies on Monday, Thursday, when Jesus is modeling enemy love and forgiveness, and that part of the world acknowledges us as a Christian nation. Even Muslims have more respect for their beliefs and their God as to commit atrocities like that on their high and holy days. We don't bat an eye. We offer our support. Because after all, God has judged them as bad. And we're good. And we're proceeding to Armageddon or whatever we do. Are you breathing? See, I'm struggling with this. So what if our consciousness has been evolving? What if, what if the stories are there to reveal to us not only the heart of God, but to reveal to us our own human tendency to judge and make a God in our own image? And because we're judging right and wrong, we create a God in our own image who is also judging right and wrong. And then we try to maneuver around this deity that we have. But what if God's not like that at all? See, I was taught, and I taught for years, that the cross was about, you know, God's upset with the world. 
for all their heathenism and paganism and whatever else. Right? And he loves you so much, he really wants you to burn. He really wants to turn you into a crispy critter. But his heart of love just goes out to you. So what he decided to do was to send his son, the second member of the Trinity, to go to the cross so he could punish him in your stead. So that's like me. Josiah, Josiah is really not very obedient child. He's really not. I love him, but he's not. Elijah, you just look at him wrong. He falls apart. So you could say Elijah's the good son. But I love Josiah so much that when he messes up, and I know punishing him doesn't work, doesn't teach him anything, I don't want him to learn, so I'm going to show him how much I love him. So Elijah, get over here. Your brother just messed up. Whew, I feel better now. Ah, come here, Josiah. Does that make any sense in anybody's world? Then how have we created that as the economy of grace? Because that's basically what we say. God will punish his son so he doesn't have to punish you. And then if you just get the right facts and the right information, then you escape judgment and you can live like hell doesn't matter. (laughs) What if the cross is totally other than that? What if it is, what if there's no exchange at all? What if it's a revelation of what God's really like? What if at the cross, God rent the veil of the fallen mind of Adam to reveal the glory and the goodness of what he's really like? So that what if it goes like this? What if when Caiaphas has Jesus and they're testing him to see if he is who he claims to be. He's before that religious system and the religious system brings judgment on him and says, you're a sinner, you have to die. So he's the victim of the judgment of a religious system that thinks they're right. And passes judgment. And then what if he stands before Pilate And Pilate says, don't you know who I am? I have the power to kill you. And he stands before a political system that thinks they're right and passes judgment on him. And he's the recipient of the judgment. But he never receives their judgment Because to receive judgment is to become a powerless victim. So he tells Pilate, you have no power except what has been given you from above. He makes statements, nobody takes my life from me. I lay my life down freely. So even though he's being the recipient of the judgmental fallen mind of Adam, he maintains his power even though he allows himself to be viewed as a criminal, subject to their judgments. And it's beautiful the way John's gospel, John's gospel is a temple gospel. It's all about the temple. It's all about the sacrificial system. And so when the, the way that John does it, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, it's a picture of 
really of the Day of Atonement and the Holy of Holies. It's a picture of uh, the high priest, if you will, shedding his blood on the mercy seat. And when it comes time for him to pass judgment on the world, because Jesus said in the Gospel of John, the hour of judgment on the world has come. And it's time for him to pass judgment. And instead of passing judgment, instead of saying, you're wrong, I'm right, you're wrong, my disciples are right, I'm with them, I'm with these at the foot of the cross, I'm not with you as the Romans, I'm going to call legions of angels. What if he sits there and says, this is my judgment, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And what if that's meant to be a revelation of who God is that penetrates so powerfully past the fallen mind of Adam that every image of God as judge begins to crumble because we realize the judgment upon the world has already been issued and the issue of judgment was, I don't judge you, I forgive you, and I release you. And what if God, what if Christ in his deity, what if the cross is a picture of Christ in his deity receiving all the projections of the fallen, of the judgmental mind that we place upon God in order to receive them into himself and transmute them into the freedom of forgiveness and grace. So that we get a little picture in John's gospel in John chapter 8 when the woman's caught in adultery. And he says, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. So let me ask you this question. Who was the only one in that crowd qualified by that statement to throw a stone? It was Jesus. And he says, even I, who have the right to kill you, even I don't condemn you. You're free. And what if that's a little snapshot of what happened for us at the cross? So that we can be set free from our spiritual post-traumatic stress disorder. So that we're no longer filtering anything that God does in our life through the lens of good and bad. And what if we really are free (laughs) to grow and develop? What if it's an evolution of consciousness? I'll close with this. Another Josiah story. So when we left for our sabbatical um, a few months ago, there was someone who blessed my boys tremendously. um, Gave them both a $100 bill. And my boys understand money, even though they're young. They understand. They, especially Josiah, man, he gets it. And so he's got that thing spent four times over, you know, and he's ready to go to Walmart that day. I'm like, no, 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 no. we're going to put that in the bank and save it. So he watches us put it in the bank here. So we're down in Arizona and, and he comes up to me and he wants to know uh, where, his, where his hundred dollars is. And I, I said, son, I said, we put that hundred dollars in the bank and he is inconsolably angry. 
Because he said, Daddy, did we put that in a bank in Colorado or did we put that in a bank in Arizona? I said, well, I deposited it in the bank in Colorado. Well, he's fit to be tied. Because in his little mind, he's got to go to that very bank and get that very $100 bill in order to have his $100. So he can't understand at all why I put $100 in his bank account or in the, in the bank. Why would you give it to the bank? Well, they keep it safe so it doesn't get lost and it doesn't get stolen from us. Yeah, but Daddy, it's in Colorado. So I said, yeah. And so in his mind, we got to drive 12 hours to Colorado to go get his $100. And he is inconsolably angry with me. So much so that he's trying to punish me. He's going to be putting me in timeout. He's hitting me. He's throwing a fit. He's building this little barricade. I'm not sure what his barricade was supposed to be, but I'm sitting there. I'm shaving. And he's like building this barricade to keep me in the bathroom and telling me how horrible I am. But you know what? He's having relationship with me. And if I want to have relationship with him, I can't sit down. There's no way I can sit down and explain to him because he thinks in his mind he's got a hundred dollar bill in that bank in like some box somewhere. And we're going to we have to go and get that very hundred dollar bill out. There's no way to explain to him online banking or transfers or he doesn't have the capacity to understand that. One day he'll have the capacity to understand that so I can make a decision. I can wait to relate to him until he understands. I can get offended at that and say, well, I can't believe, why are you, you're being naughty, you're being disrespectful to your dad. Or I can honor his stage of the evolution of his consciousness. I can honor the stage of his development and I can enter into his world and I can relate to him on his terms even if it means that he misunderstands me because he can't understand the higher realities of banking in our world. So is it possible then that God comes to humanity as a whole or he comes to us as individuals and he relates to us based on our capacities to understand and he's willing to put on the garment of our own judgments and even willing to endure our own the wrath of us against us because he understands you don't you do not know what you do you don't have the capacity to understand the higher dimensions and the higher realities of the kingdom yet but i'm not going to wait for you to grow up to have relationship with you i'm going to enter into your judgments i'm going to enter into your reality i'm going to enter into your consciousness and i'm going to allow you to clothe me with your consciousness so that i can have a relationship with you and what if the evolution of consciousness or ascension or whatever you want to call it about is god stripping away the garments of our mind that we have put on god so that we based on the capacity at which we were able to understand him when we got saved, when we had encounters. Is this making sense to you? So, so, that, so that spiritual growth is about God declothing and shedding the garments of our judgments and our misperceptions. And if we don't understand that when we read the Bible, we confuse the clothing for the being in whom, who is wearing the clothing in order to have a relationship with people that we have no connection to. Because I don't know about you, but I haven't seen too many human sacrifices lately. 
So humanity as a whole is past that. So we cannot cling, oh, Jesus, protect me from religious stuff, religious retaliation. We cling to garments that are millennial old, and we give humanity no credit spiritually for having evolved to a place that they can understand God differently. And we say we're bound authoritatively to that model instead of realizing, no, that's there to teach us. That's there to serve us, to teach us, to elevate our consciousness, but we're not there to serve it. So that it's a tool for my spiritual growth, not an instrument that enslaves me and causes PTSD. <laughs> Especially speaking. Does that make sense to you? So you don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have all this maturity. God, God's willing to come to you in the clothing that you put on him. But when he begins to shed that clothing, just understand you're going to go through a season of disorientation, a season of confusion. The best thing that can happen to you is you have a crisis of faith. Because as long as you don't, you're actually in charge. You're actually controlling the situation because you've got God all figured out. And he is an ineffable mystery. And Paul said, your ways are past finding out. In other words, I think Paul just got to the point where he's like, I can't figure God out. And even our New Testament is people wrestling with the light, still in their darkness, trying to figure out who God is. So even in the New Testament, you have to sort through what is the mind of Christ and what is the fallen mind of Adam. Because ultimately that word will reflect to you what's in your own heart. And if the God that we behold is primarily a judge, we will sit ourselves in the judgment seat. And it's impossible to love and judge at the same time. Let's pray. Father, I, I did my best this morning with this. I pray that you'll be able to use something that I said to elevate us in our thinking and bring healing. Lord, if there's people like me that are suffering at deep levels of their belief system with a traumatic image of who you are, then, Lord, I'm asking for a special grace to be released that will shatter that stronghold so that your love can penetrate fully and completely. And all of us can come to a place of total, unconditional acceptance of who you've made, made us to be and where we are in the journey. Amen.